Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Lee Bollinger and Jeffrey Stone, editors of the new volume, National Security, Leaks, and Freedom of the Press, the Pentagon Papers, 50 Years On. Lee Bollinger is the president of Columbia University, and Jeffrey Stone is a professor of law at the University of Chicago. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. I think that the first thing we should establish is that while this is a commemoration of the 15th anniversary of the Pentagon Papers, this is a project that goes so much broader and and deeper than that. Jeff, could I ask you to talk about how you and Lee first decided to work on this project and how it became this book? Well, we've done a number of books before this one that consisted of essays written by experts in the field. And so the idea of the book itself came fairly naturally. We had shortly before published a book called The Free Speech Century uh, with a somewhat similar framework. But obviously, the Pentagon Papers decision is a fundamental moment in American constitutional law. And uh, both of us thought that both because it was a decision uh, worthy of uh, celebrating, but also recognizing that the world has changed dramatically since then. And uh, having a conversation and discussion about what are the different ways in which we should be thinking about the issues addressed by the Pentagon Papers in the current environment. And so we put together a, a group of experts in national security, in journalism, and in First Amendment jurisprudence to work with us to produce the essays in the book. And Lee... I know that there probably are some listeners who, while they may be vaguely familiar with the Pentagon Papers, may have really not a deep understanding of um, how the Pentagon Papers came to impact First Amendment law. So could you give people just an overview? What were the Pentagon Papers? Why did we end up hearing about them? And how did they launch so many press and First Amendment directives? Sure. So Pentagon Papers is one of the most important cases in the evolution of First Amendment jurisprudence. And of course, we know that it was decided by the Supreme Court in 1971. It is important to start with the understanding as well that the Supreme Court did not interpret the First Amendment, even though it was part of the Bill of the Bill of Rights right from the beginning, until 1919. So When Jeff mentioned that we have done books before and the Free Speech Century in particular, we did that volume in order to sort of celebrate and to assess, take stock of the development of First Amendment jurisprudence broadly since 1919, and that was published in 2019. So so First Amendment jurisprudence is really quite recent in the way that it's we think of it today. And it's even more recent than that in the sense that the major cases that defined First Amendment law, constitutional law, really primarily came from this 1960s and 70s period. And Pentagon Papers was one of the seminal decisions of that era. So every society, every at least democratic society has to figure out how to deal with a basic problem. And that problem is that the government needs to be able to operate in secret, but to some extent, but it also is always at risk of uh, operating too much in secret. And the public, the citizens, have a right to be informed about what their government is doing. 
And if the government abuses power or tries to operate too much in secret, you need some mechanism in which to uh, grapple with that problem. Other countries around the world have different ways of approaching this than Pentagon Papers. Pentagon Papers came in that era of the Vietnam War, the 1960s and into the 70s. And Daniel Ellsberg was working on a project. He was a contractor working with the Defense Department, and he was aware that uh, the Defense Department had uh, developed this history of the war in Vietnam called um, History of the War in Vietnam. And he felt that this should be made public and um, handed it over to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And those uh, news organizations realized that they had something that was of great interest and value to the public and decided that they would publish it. The government, Nixon administration, felt that that was a violation of the law and asked the court to enjoin uh, publication of the papers. And it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided to protect the press's right against an injunction to publish uh, the papers. We have had a number of leaks in, I'm going to say, the last two decades that really have brought a lot of new questions to this area. One of the things that's pointed out a number of times in various essays in the book is that while there are a number of new ways to obtain information which can be leaked, it's also much, much easier to track down the leakers. I'm thinking here particularly of Reality Winner, who was recently released from prison, but was in there for a number of years for leaking classified information. And I would love to hear from you, Jeff, about what you and the rest of the commission members that you gathered see as the primary concerns that have emerged since the time of the Pentagon Papers when it comes to this area of law. Well, one thing that's changed is that the number of individuals who either are government employees or are government contractors who have access to classified information has increased profoundly over that time period, particularly after 9-11. And therefore, the government's ability to monitor and to even know who these people really are is much less than it was in an earlier era when the individuals were basically a relatively small group um, who could be managed uh, by the government itself. So it simply increases dramatically the potential, because of the numbers have increased, for leaks. A second thing that's changed is that the ability to leak huge amounts of information has changed dramatically over the years. Uh, when Daniel Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers, he basically had to smuggle out of the Pentagon the hard copies of the document, which was 7,000 pages long, and he had to do it over a long period of time in relatively small increments, and then Xerox the pages that he had taken out, and then return the pages he'd stolen so he wouldn't be caught, and then do the next set of pages. And this was a very obviously constraining process that he had to go through. Today, with thumb drives and the like, uh, government employees can access and reveal enormous amounts of information, literally millions of times what Daniel Ellsberg was able to do. And that creates a number of problems. First of all, it increases dramatically 
the amount of information that can be revealed. And it also limits dramatically the ability of the leaker to have even the faintest idea of what it is that he or she is actually leaking. And that, that puts the government, again, in much greater risk in terms of its ability to keep secret information that the government thinks needs to be secret. And then the third major change over the years is that Daniel Ellsberg released the information to the New York Times and the Washington Post, two highly responsible mainstream organizations that spent literally months in the New York Times case going through the 7,000 pages of material and reviewing it with a range of different journalist experts to be sure that it was not revealing information that would, in fact, damage legitimate national security interests of the country. Today, you can provide the information to all sorts of entities that have neither the uh, skill nor the interest in being responsible and are much more interested in revealing huge amounts of information because it's cool to do so, but without engaging in the kind of thoughtful and responsible screening that the Times and the Post did. And as a consequence, the danger of releasing potentially uh, harmful information is, again, far greater than it was uh, back in the, in the 1970s. So I think all of those changes have dramatically increased the risk of harm to the nation from disclosure of information. And I think the government has become increasingly concerned about all of that. I do wonder, for people who have never been inside of a journalism organization, you know, I, I think back to the amount of meetings I've had when I've worked for a newspaper and my current magazine, the ABA Journal, I don't think people have any idea how many meetings we have and how many discussions are held over what would probably be considered minutia to anyone outside of that room. Most journalism organizations that I've worked with or been in contact with do deliberate very carefully over any number of decisions. You know, if you want to use a pseudonym for someone you have interviewed, you need to take that decision to your editor and he'll take it to a number of other editors up to the publisher may be involved. We have a lot of internal in-depth checks. However, because we, we are a free press, none of this is codified in law and there is no sort of licensing System And one of the discussions that's held in this book is who do we consider a journalist? Who do we consider the press? And how can the society trust that people we label as the press will be responsible with this information? Lee, I'd love to hear from you about that. Has there been a history of trying to determine who, who counts as press when it comes to leaks and First Amendment rights? Well, so this is a core question discussed in the book and approached by the commission that Jeff and I established and on which we sat to try to take the essays that were published in the book and to uh, see if we could develop a consensus around concrete recommendations and one of the deepest puzzles here is given the risks that Jeff identified of really releasing very harmful information to the public, I mean, making public very harmful information uh, to the overall nation, 
And on the other hand, the need for the public to find out what the government is doing and to counteract abuses of power, etc. Should that be a right, a constitutional right that is limited just to journalistic organizations or organizations that subscribe to or have demonstrated adherence to uh, journalistic standards, or should it be available uh, to everyone? Under the First Amendment, there is a longstanding debate about whether the free press clause and the overall interpretation of the First Amendment should allow for special rights to the, quote, press. If you say yes to that, uh, then you have to have some concept of who qualifies for that status. The other view is that we should really not have any uh, limitation or special rights afforded to, quote, the press. And whatever rights we create under the First Amendment should be available to all citizens, no matter who they are or what their uh, particular standards are. In today's world, as Jeff noted, the risks of information we don't want public being made public are much higher, so it seems, uh, than it was in 1971 when Pentagon Papers was decided. And that leads to, uh, there is also the case to be made that the need for information that the press can give and citizens can give is much greater today than it was in 1971. That leads you then to the, uh, inevitably, to this problem of do we change the balance and what is actually an ambiguity in Pentagon Papers as to whether uh, this is just a a right that is to be afforded to the, quote, press, or is it um, something we should keep for that? But I think at the end of the day, the book sort of moves towards a notion that if there is going to be a continuation of the Pentagon Papers' constitutional uh, principles, we're probably going to have to have some concept of press that evolves. But it doesn't go so far as to actually endorse that. And Jeff can make a powerful case that uh, that would be going too far. Uh, So I think we leave it inevitably in the book as something that clearly has to be resolved, almost certainly will have to be resolved, but it may be too early to announce a resolution of that. I think Jeff should um, speak here, Lee, because this really is something that we uh, discussed and debated and is is a core issue uh, in the volume. And I would love to hear from you, Jeff, because especially as more traditional media companies are hemorrhaging staff and, you know, resources, we as a journalism community often are relying on people who are not traditional journalists for a lot of the core investigative works. I'm thinking here of the January 6th insurrection, a number of these people were identified not by journalists or police, but by people on the internet. So no, I would I would be fascinated to hear your perspective on this issue. As we've already noted, I mean, one of the major changes and problems is that information can be disclosed and communicated broadly by, at this point, almost any Tom, Dick, and Harry on social media. One doesn't have to go to the press to get information disclosed. 
And the Supreme Court has been up to this point, and I think understandably, reluctant to define for itself who qualifies as the press. It doesn't want to have to decide that some newspaper is the press and another newspaper is not the press, or that newspapers are the press and radio and television are not the press, or social social media platforms and so on. So, and 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 you know, is a school newspaper the press? I mean, the court does not want to get involved in that set of issues. One way, in theory, to address this issue would be if the government itself were to pass a law that identified several institutions, whether existing institutions of the current press or perhaps other private institutions that could function in this manner and say that any of these 30 institutions have complete immunity for the publication of any classified information because we've selected them because they are trustworthy and responsible and should have this degree of freedom and the government would then be identifying them. And that's a very complicated notion because it gives the government then the power to decide who gets this freedom and who doesn't. And that's something that's quite worrisome. On the other hand, that might be conceivably a better solution if there's a way reliably to identify these institutions, whether of existing media or otherwise, who would have a complete freedom, and then to give less protection than the Pentagon Papers case gives to, quote, media uh, who disclose information otherwise because we don't want to rely upon them to make these decisions in a serious and responsible way. So that's one type of, quote, solution that's possible. But it's a very awkward one because it does involve the government in deciding uh, who gets to do this. Now, we've lived through a world like that in a different environment. For example, with radio and television, when the government essentially licensed certain entities to be ABC, NBC, CBS, NPR, and so on, and to give them the right to use the airwaves. And this would be in some ways analogous to that. And the question is, could we trust ourselves, that is the government, to do this in a way that would be responsible and non-political? If we can work out a system for doing that, that might be a way of enabling the public to have access to this information while at the same time not allowing every Tom, Dick, and Harry to publish it on social media and have the kind of immunity that the New York Times and the Washington Post did in the Pentagon Papers case. One of the recommendations that you all came to um, as a commission, and just so that my listeners uh, have a feel for the book, which again is National Security, Leaks, and Freedom of the Press. The part one is the national security perspective, and you have experts from national security backgrounds Uh, right in that section. Part two is the journalist's perspective, and part three is the academic perspective. And then it's rounded out by this report of the commission. But one of the parts of the report's recommendations that I found fascinating was you say there is a need for additional outlets that give whistleblowers options that aren't the press. And, you know, Daniel Ellsberg, as you said, this this was not a snap decision. He had to really work to Xerox 7,000 papers and sneak them out of the building, all this. And he, he didn't, you know, the New York Times were, was not the first 
person he came to. He agonized over this decision. He talked it over with various people and he came to the conclusion that his only option was the press. But when you recommend that there be other avenues and outlets for whistleblowers, what are some of the examples of of, of ways that could happen? Because I found that a really interesting proposal. Well, I'm not an expert in the um, uh, whistleblowing procedures or statutes or regulations. Um, but, um, I mean, the there are a number of uh, points in the book where it sort of outline things that could be done to uh, make it easier for whistleblowers appropriately to make misconduct and other kinds of uh, disclosures uh, make it happen. I think what's really important is that as you look at this as I described at the very beginning and Jeff did, this fundamental problem. I mean, it's really a core problem of a democracy. Government has to be able to operate in secrecy. Public needs to know what the government is doing. And how do you balance that? In some societies like Britain, it's very clear. If the press uh, gets a hold of uh, classified information, secret information of the government, it is prohibited from publishing it, period. The the people don't like the fact that the government is operating with this level of secrecy. It can vote them out. We have a very different system, and Pentagon Papers established this, of this kind of checks and balances. But it's it's a really, really awkward, difficult somewhat chaotic solution to the problem, I think distinctly American. When you look at that and then you go through all the things that we've said about how the world has changed with digitizing of uh, information and computers and and publishers, etc., that's one kind of area of analysis. Have the values and the cost and benefits of this approach change? The other area is the one you're raising, Lee, which is, are there other things you can do uh, that would make it either less likely that bad information will be revealed under the Pentagon Papers type of regime or that we don't really need uh, it quite so much? So whistleblowers is an alternative way of trying to deal with the problem. So then you need to, and everybody agrees that we don't have a good system for whistleblowers. Another one is that the government can have a a more careful way of trying to decide what should be classified and what not. Everybody agrees in the book that the government vastly overclassifies and does much more classification today than it did a few decades ago. So you can be more, you can insist on greater care in deciding what to classify and what not. Another thing the government can do to deal with this problem of you know, sensitive information being released is to be more careful internally. Richard Clark makes this argument very powerfully in the book. So, so the whistleblower, um, you know, being more careful with classification of documents, uh, being more careful with keeping uh, secrets secret, legitimate secret secrets. There are a variety of secret. There are a variety of things that you can do that will affect the balance. But overall, what's most interesting to me and what I think your listeners would find most interesting is that after 50 years, if you look at the views of major people from the government, major people from the press and the academy, law professors and the like, the general consensus is that Pentagon Papers, as chaotic and difficult as it is, has worked reasonably well, and we should not yet abandon it, even in the face 
of all these multiple considerations. That's a very significant uh, conclusion, we think. And Lee, you mentioned Richard Clark's chapter. One of the things in it that I found so fascinating was he says that there is not a you know central clearinghouse for clearances. He said he had clearance, you know, more clearances than he could count at certain points, clearances that even his main office at the White House when he was working there may not have known. The, the system of granting security clearances is so much more Byzantine than I had realized. So that was one of the fun things that you get, I think, through reading the book is it really gives you a window into a lot of areas when it comes to national security or, or leaks that you may not have known anything about. I think that's right. And I, it's also true from every dimension. So when you listen to read Ellen Nakashima or others on the journalistic side of, of the care they bring to trying to make sure that they don't you know, publish information that would really be damaging to the society and outweigh the benefits of public disclosure, public information. I mean, it's really a, a fascinating insight into how journalistic standards have evolved. You mentioned this yourself. It's an extremely important element in the balance of interests here. Now, one of the points the book makes is that there is a real difference both in public perception and often in case outcome between the government employees who leak this information and the press person who receives it. Jeff, could you talk a little bit about this? One of the suggestions that one often hears, not necessarily from the experts in the book, about this is, well, why can't government employees have a First Amendment right to leak information if the press has a right to publish it? Doesn't it make sense to make the same standard apply to both the press and to the government employee? And what the, the world of the Pentagon Papers created these two very different doctrines. That is, members of the, of the government national security world who sign an agreement as a condition of having the job that they will not release any classified information, the court has basically upheld the principle that they can be punished for releasing information, period. And the defense that they would put up is, well, I think it was in the public interest and it was worth publishing. The answer to that under the law is no. We don't want you trying to make that decision. You're not well-placed to make that decision thoughtfully and intelligently, so do not make it and do not think you have a right to make it. On the other hand, the press, if they receive the information, is almost absolutely protected if they decide to publish the information. And that seems very anomalous to many people. I mean, what a kind of crazy system that is, that you're trying to prevent the government employee from releasing the information and they can go to jail if they do so, but the press can publish it and do all the damage once they get it in their hands. And so one, one alternative world would be one in which the employees and the press would be under the same standard. You can publish the information if the public value outweighs the harm to the government. And that would be true both to the employee and to the publisher. And part of the reason the court does not want to go there is that's an almost impossible judgment to make on an ad hoc basis. And there's a sense of a need for certainty here. But there is this weirdness about this current state of the law, which again says that if the employee has essentially no defense if they disclose the information and the press has virtually 100% freedom to publish it. Yet, the, as Lee mentioned earlier, it works. Over time, we have found that leaked information has, in general, been valuable to the public. 
And at least until recently, because of some of the changes we've discussed, it's actually worked out reasonably well. Now, the problem there is we don't know what has never been leaked and never been disclosed because no government employee has released it because they have they go to jail if they release it. And there's undoubtedly much too much protection of, of the government in this world. And the question is, should there be a, a looser standard that gives the employee either greater freedom to disclose information or one of the things that the commission talks about in the book is a greater opportunity for government employees to present their belief that certain information should not be classified and to present that to some government entity which can review their concerns and make the decision to disclose the information if they conclude that the employee is right that this information shouldn't be classified. And interestingly, many of the people from the national security world support that kind of an entity. But right now, we do have this peculiarity about the government employee having no defense and and the press, if they get the information, being absolutely protected if they publish it. And that is very interesting, particularly considering that in 1972, a case that was brought up in the book a few times, uh, Brandsburg v. Hayes was decided, which makes it clear that reporters can still be compelled to come in and testify. And I know in journalism school, in ethics courses, you know, you certainly talk a lot about your responsibility as a journalist to protect your sources and that the reality of the situation is you you can be subpoenaed. And if you do refuse to testify about their identities, you can go to jail. So it does seem pretty clear that the 1970 Supreme Court wasn't just declaring all reporters free to do whatever, but it's, you know, it's so nuanced. And, and I think that the book really gets into some of that nuance. Lee, do you have anything to add? What Jeff said is really, really important. There are people in the book, uh, one in particular, Jamil Jaffer, who argues uh, passionately that leakers ought to be able to raise a defense, that the value of the information for the public outweighed the harm. So there, there is the case in the book uh, that this should be squared uh, differently. There's another issue that is related to this, which is when does a journalist cross a line in actively committing a crime in taking the information or getting the information that can result in a prosecution and no protection under the First Amendment. So if a journalist breaks into the Pentagon and opens file drawers and takes out documents, it doesn't matter that those documents are incredibly valuable for public uh, knowledge and information. Uh, The journalist can be prosecuted uh, for breaking and entering and stealing What happens uh, when a journalist is dealing with a potential leaker and says to the leaker, I really urge you and and want you to go in and get this information and give it to me? Is that uh, aiding and abetting an employee of the government to commit a crime? If the employee does that, it's clear that it's a crime. Or has the journalist simply performed from the journalism side a journalistic function that we should all uh, expect and be part of the protection that Pentagon Papers uh, affords the press in the publishing of uh, classified information. So that's another area of dispute and uncertainty and ambiguity in this overall tapestry of laws uh, and constitutional principles at stake. I'd love to talk to you guys about how you went about recruiting 
some of the people who contributed to this book because it really is quite an impressive list of experts who come from a real breadth of experience and viewpoints. So when you were sitting down and the two of you said, you know what, it's going to be the 50th anniversary, we need to do a project specifically about the Pentagon Papers, how did you decide who to reach out to and and what was the reception from people? So I had uh, had uh, a pretty set of intimate relations with a number of the national security experts because uh, Barack Obama had appointed me to the NSA review group after the Snowden disclosures. And in that context, I got to know well and to work with people like Michael Morell, former acting head of the CIA, John Brennan, head of the CIA, uh, Keith Alexander, head of uh, NSA, Richard Clark, who was on the review group with me. And so I was in a good position with that set of people uh, who I'd all gotten to know, gotten to know them all personally, to invite them to participate and to explain to them why Lee and I thought this was a really interesting and valuable project. And they all, they were all terrific and agreed to participate and wrote really interesting and open essays that were eye-opening about uh, the ways in which they operated. And in particular, they were pretty candid about the changes that they thought needed to be made in the national security world to improve both the security side and also the availability of information to the public. But I think, for me at least, that was the primary connection that enabled us to gain access to that that group of participants. And I think the <laughs> this is an incredibly hard problem. And so when you, and everybody lives by this, uh, uh, lives with this problem, that journalists are constantly receiving secret information and having to decide what to do with it. And government officials are constantly dealing with leaks and the like. And law professors have, you know, puzzled about this and will continue to forever. I I think people were gripped by the subject. And of course, Jeff and I being law professors, the idea of having multiple perspectives on a very hard problem is irresistible. And as a reader, as I said, I I really did enjoy getting to see so many people's perspectives. I felt that everyone was pretty frank and open about their their own experiences and perspectives. You know, you have some pretty high-powered journalists as well contributing. So uh, truly, if you're interested at all in the First Amendment or national security, this is is a book to pick up. Again, the title is National Security Leaks – and freedom of the press. If my listeners were interested in finding out more about this project, or maybe even digging into some more sources about the Pentagon Papers themselves, would you have any recommended further reading or people that they could reach out to? Is there a website for the book? I mean, I think uh, just two thoughts. Uh, one is go read the case itself. It's it's actually quite easy to read a Supreme Court decision, and there'll be a variety of words you won't understand. But you can look them up and you can talk to somebody who, I mean, th- th- there are very, very difficult doctrines like the doctrine of prior restraint, which just applies in this case because it's an injunction. But the main point is to get a flavor of the way in which the Supreme Court struggled with this itself and had multiple, multiple opinions and yet came down with this result of protecting the press. 
I think there's just, if you just go now, because it's the 50th anniversary, there have been really interesting articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post and other places about this. And you can pick up um, a lot of the story behind the, the case. If I could just kick in a recommendation, the very first time I had read about the Pentagon Papers was in college. My media law professor had suggested the book The Brethren by Bob Woodward. I cannot attest to the complete accuracy of every word in The Brethren, but it was about the Supreme Court that ended up hearing the Pentagon Papers case, and it goes into why each justice wrote their own opinion and really was a fascinating kind of look behind the curtain. So that's The Brethren, written quite some time ago by by Bob Woodward. I just wanted to thank both of you for joining us for this episode and to my listeners for joining us to hear about national security, leaks, and freedom of the press, the Pentagon Papers, 50 years on. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.